Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Welcome back to Herd Tell. This one's going to be fun. We've been looking forward to this one. We talked about this the first time we talked. We were going to do it. Now we're going to do it. We are going to seize the means of production of really bad internet hot takes over communism with our good friend Amanda Griffins returning to the program. She studies all kinds of political science and history and theory and all sorts of things. If you haven't heard her talking Machiavelli with us for the better part of an hour, that's some of the most fun we've had in a long time. Make sure you go check that out. We'll make sure to link to it too. Amanda, thanks for coming back. This is the one we talked about the first time we talked here. We are doing it. I'm so glad you're here. It was. I got so stoked, and I'm still stoked to be here. So thanks so much, Andrew. Yeah. Comrade Amanda, I guess I should call you for the this Comrade one. Griffiths. Yeah. Commissar comrade Griffiths. Griffiths. Ah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> of the Martha Vineyards Griffiths, no doubt. Um, or the Newport. Is it Newport? I always screw that saying up. Anyway, uh, here's the thing about communism. Everybody thinks they know what it is, and I think it's one of those generational things where I don't think anybody really knows what it is. It sounds simple. Uh, let's just go to the definition. This is Britannica. Uh, used to be encyclopedias. Now they're online. Communism is a political and economic doctrine that aims to replace private property and a profit-based economy with public ownership and communal control of at least the major means of production and natural resources of a society. Communism is thus a form of socialism. Well, that sounds simple. We can take the rest of the day off, right? Uh, more or less. Yeah. And then just, you know, start a, start a union that helps us take uh, days off in perpetuity and never find meaning in anything that we do. Um, no, sorry, getting a little bit spicy, a little bit early, but no, I, it's, it's interesting to hear the, uh, kind of the, the discrepancies between the ways that if you're in academia, you talk about communism. If you are, uh, in, in media, you talk about communism. Um, the way that I look at it and break it down is that communism is the ideology for which socialism is the set of institutions. And that's not a hard and fast definition. In fact, in many respects, people would disagree with that. Um, but communism is essentially, uh, it's, it's sort of the, the rootstock of, you know, why are we socializing the means of production? Why are we collectivizing? Communism is the overall thrust of, first of all, it's the intention and the outcome of socialist institutions. So, yes, in a sense, uh, the Britannica definition is spot on. Uh, it's it's that you socialize means production, that you eliminate private property. We might get into some of this because I really like doing a deep dive on the ideology aspect, but you eliminate private property 
meaning what is proper to the self and what's the first type of property, well, selfhood. So eventually, if you do carry communism to its logical conclusion, as a good Bolshevik would want to do, you do eliminate selfhood. And so you get to that, but in the economic respect, that's really more uh, what Britannica is getting at with socialism. Uh, socialism would be the set of economic and political institutions that make communism a, a possibility and, and realize that possibility. Now, this is nothing new under the sun territory, although what, most of what we're going to be doing, we're going to be dealing off of Marx's remix of it. We'll sure. get to that in a minute. But we had this all through ancient history. The Greeks debated a communal society. That's actually how we got democracy was they were debating com communalism or not communism as we're using it, but communalism, rejecting it, said, well, that ain't going to work. We got to have some structure. That's kind of how they started getting into democracy. We see it in biblical texts. We have it in Eastern Asian texts from way back before anything in the Western world, before most of those people were even writing properly. This is all throughout human history, this idea of communal living, everybody's going to be equal, everybody's going to share. That's really? all well and good. The reason it hasn't worked until now is because anybody that's been in a kindergarten room understands that sharing without some kind of external force usually doesn't turn out really well. I know that's a whole lot of human history to bridge before you get to Marx, but just kind of nutshell it. That's the thing is this is a very old idea in human behavior of well, let's just all be communal and people keep coming back to it over and over and over again. That's really the overarching theme here, isn't it? Um, brilliantly put. And yes, in fact, there is nothing new about Hegel. This is one of those things that really irks me is that Hegel's not doing anything different from Plato. Uh, when when you get Pl Plato, I'm not going to say that Plato gives you uh, Hegelianism, although I think for Hegel, he certainly does. Um, I, yes, it comes out in many, many cultures throughout history. You're also correct that the reason that you can socialize things and, and you can have different stratifications of, 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 you know, of collectivization is because you have brute force. But when you give people the opportunity to pursue their own lot and pursue their own meaning as it's become more and more possible to do through industrialization, uh, then what ends up happening is people say, no, I want to keep more for myself. And when that happens, then you get attention. You get a, a huge tension between this ideal of what could be and, and making everyone equal and keeping everyone safe through equality as it's defined by the superior, right? As it's defined by the most advantaged. And this tension of wanting to pursue your own ends, wanting to pursue your own ideal of meaning, really we're talking about existentialism, that's more revolutionary. Um, and it's, it's funny how you'll get a lot of socialist existentialists, which I, I consider myself an existentialist, and it, it, is, it is interesting to see that, that tension even within existentialism. Um, but yeah, it's uh, communism, and that idea tries to keep everything stagnant to a point and is incredibly threatened by this idea that people can pursue their own meaning and pursue their own ends. And when you look at the history of communism and when you look at the history of attempts to socialize, what ends up happening is that the people for whom communism is putatively intended 
reject it. You know, the, 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 the Paris Commune, the anarchists said, no, we kind of just want to live peacefully. Uh, when you had the, uh, the, 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 to, the uh, to the people movement uh, in Tsarist Russia, the people just kind of wanted more of their own land. When you tried to socialize the factory workers initially, the factory workers were ca- well, they kind of wanted capitalism. They, they just they wanted to they wanted to keep more of their own money. So time and again, the people the the people lowercase t lowercase p for whom communism is intended to help reject it, and so communism has to fabricate this ideal of capital T capital P the people that don't exist. How much is that personification, for lack of a better way to explain it? You got a better word, you use it. Personify. Look, we see this in politics now. We see it in the modern day with all kinds of different causes and and candidates, frankly. The people personifying that. The state personifying that. Workers can be one of the, you know, lay, look, I'm, you know, I'm from coal mining country. Like you did not cross picket lines. And if somebody was a scab, you went to their house and talked to them about it. And that usually wasn't a polite conversation. You know, the worker that can be personified mm-hmm. what to get to the core of this because we get into the philosophical stuff really quick and and then you got to start googling stuff for people like me and and because we don't understand them big words i think we need to just start right there though mm-hmm. with that basic definition of what you personify drives your ideology a lot more than your ideology drives who you are as a person and people just don't get their heads around that because it's easier to just do it the other way. And it takes a lot of self-reflection to kind of look back on and go, well, am I really one of the workers? Cause what does the workers mean other than this nice big, but you know, buzzword before there was a buzzword. Is that a big piece of this that we just miss and we don't talk about enough? That personification. It's a huge piece of it. And again, you're putting this really well. Uh, I was thinking this morning, uh, you know, I have this, uh, I'm, I'm a, I'm a graduate student and I currently attend a, uh, um, I'm, you know, I, I currently attend a, a public university. And so there's, there's a lot of union action there too. And there is, I am much more sympathetic toward the early labor movement than a lot of people who might consider themselves libertarian, small libertarian as I do. Um, but there is, a significant conflict now between gig economy and the labor movement today. And part of that has to do with the fact that, you know, when you had this, this early, you know, this early collective sense of who the worker is, it made more sense to do it that way. And I'll, We'll go through some history of industrialization. We'll try to keep it surface level, partly because I got to keep it surface level because I'm not a historian. I'm a political theorist, which means I'm about to be unemployed. But we'll, so when you had this early industrialization movement, industrial era, work and labor were very, very rote. You were basically screwing in widgets. You were screwing in widgets all day. Your working conditions were terrible. You know, you had you had factory fires all the time. You didn't matter as an individual human being when you went to work. And that was most of your day. That was most of your life. And you did not matter. What you cared about, your family, your passions, your needs, your religion, whatever, that didn't matter. So 
it made sense during the early industrial era when labor was very rote and not individualized at all, when what you were making was this sort of manual product, it made sense to create a community of workers and see workers, even in collective action, even in fighting for workers' rights, workers' rights meant treating the workers collectively as one thing, because the worker was really just someone who did one thing and had one function. So the early labor movement, it made sense to just personify that one worker. And people found meaning in the community that was created through that personification, that writ large worker. Fast forward, and because of innovation, because of industrialization, because innovation begets innovation, the unit of labor has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller with, where's my phone? I can't find my phone. Oh, here. With this, I can do so much. I can be an actor, a producer, a singer. Uh, I, can, I can pitch myself with, with this piece of technology. I don't have to screw in a single widget any day of my life. Now, what that means is that I and you, what we're doing right now is we're talking about ideas. We're being individuals. We're marketing ourselves and our ideas and our thoughts. So it makes so much less sense today to treat the worker as a collective because the worker, your product, is your values. That's an awesome thing. So we're, we've had this revolution in what it means to be a worker what it means to produce, what it means to create. And communist ideology hasn't caught up with that. Indeed, it can't catch up with that because it is an ideology of movement toward stagnation. It's an ideology of a predetermined end, and that's what we're going for, and then we're done. So communism can only take progress so far and then it actually begins to regress as people become more and more important in labor and in work. So the work, the, the, the idea of work has changed so much and communism hasn't. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And Amanda Griffiths joining us, not to give Marx the benefit of the doubt here, because we can hash him out for, man, there's people that spend their whole careers on that. He's right. When he writes something like critiques of the Gotha program in 1875, even though it wasn't published until after his death, it was kind of the, the mission statement for him and Ingalls. 
you know, he defines this stuff out really explicitly. He wanted to use communism, socialism interchangeably because he wanted to take over the socialist idea. Talks about the dictatorship of the proletariat, all these concepts. This is 1875 Europe. There's a lot going on. We can't cover it all here. But that sort of thing you're talking about, that factory, the industrialization. Look, they're, they have living memory of the Industrial Revolution at that time still. They have massive change coming. They have, you know, on the horizon in the next 20 years, even more massive change. That time period had to have influenced his views of things like the worker, of the state, of individualism. We know philosophically everything that happened, in, especially in Germany, but in Europe in that time period, you know, 1820 to the 1890s. There's a lot going on and a lot of it's bad, frankly. And that's the background you have to understand that Marx is working out of. Exactly. And once again, you're you're doing a great job summarizing this uh, and, and setting this up. So when we were doing when we were talking about various things to read up on for the show, I, I said that there are two books that I that I often recommend and I love one of which is Darkness at Noon, which is uh, allegedly fiction. Um, it's author Arthur Kustler and then A People's Tragedy, which is an absolute tome but it goes through the Russian Revolution and the period that you're discussing. Uh, and this is Orlando Figgis. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. If I'm butchering anyone's name, I apologize. Um, now, so I, I'm very, very much uh, interested in the history of Bolshevism and bol bol Bolshevist uh, ideology in particular. And uh, yes, so with, with, with Russian communism and Bolshevism, you had this immense, immense gap in wealth that is nothing like we see today in the US. And added to that, you mentioned Marx. So it's very, it's really funny. Um, Marx had been, there, there were censors in, in Russia and Tsarist Russia. And Marx had been, a lot of Marx's work had been banned uh, by, by the Tsars for obvious reasons. Capital gets through, why? Because the censors read it. And the censors are like, this is way too boring. I don't know. I don't know what this means. No one's going to care. No one's, no one's going to read this work. So Marx's capital comes through. And it's one of few works from outside of Russia that does. So the Russians are not really getting a whole lot of new stuff. They're getting Marx. They're getting Darwin. And they're, they're getting a few things here and there. So they're getting a lot of utilitarianism and then they're getting Marx. You are absolutely correct that to an extent, it makes some sense to see Marx as a product of his time. And one of the difficult things for me, an extremely difficult thing is borderline existential crisis thing for me, was learning up on this and, and studying communism and socialism and reading Darkness at Noon for the very first time as I did in my uh, very, very early 20s and realizing, you know, I can see myself in that time period being kind of a, being a Bolshevik because of the way that, th that, that society was structured and because of the, the, the limited avenues for meaning and the desire to find meaning in politics and the intellect, intellectualization of politics and the politicization of the intellectual. It's very romantic. So yes, there are limited 
ways of seeing the world. And I think you're correct, Marx falls into this. Uh, and a lot of thinkers at the time fell into this. Uh, and it, it's, it's easy to see how in a way when you understand the history. Yeah, um, Amanda Griffiths joining us. Now, we're going to get to Lenin in just a second, which that's the gasoline on this fire. That's when this changed. But before we get to him, we have to deal with Marx. And um, by the way, poor Frederick Engels never gets any press anymore. You know, take that for what you want. It's kind of interesting how Marx yeah. gets all the headlines, I guess, because it's a better name. But we so associate communism with authoritarianism and dictatorships and all the bad stuff. That's mostly from Lenin. When Marx lays out his communism, and all we have is on paper because there's no video and audio of Marx, so we have to do it all off his writings. When we cut through it, Marx himself, he had his two systems of socialism to communism, of course, the transitional system where you play along with the, with the capitalists long enough to get everything working, and then you go to the full communist state. Was it inherently authoritative? Was he, would he have recognized the Leninistic system of authoritarianism, communism that comes later? What would I know we're mind reading here, but what was his intentions? Did he was, was he selling something that he knew was a bad good because he understood human nature better than we think he did? Or did he really believe this stuff and think, no, authoritarianism is never going to hijack this and kill millions and millions of people that we see now with the benefit of hindsight? Yeah, I think it's it's a great question. And again, I don't I don't know for sure. I, I work with people who are experts on Marx. I don't consider myself an expert on on Marx. Uh, but it's true that Marx is not as ideological as people make him out to be. Uh, he is, you, know, you say correctly that Engels doesn't get enough credit. I think Marx gets too much credit for being too much of an ideologue. Marx is a bad poet. I mean, Marx is not even an economist. He's a he writer. He was also He's starving at the time. We were talking about the product of his times. The dude was literally homeless and starving. So he, we need to he, make sure we touch on that. He was homeless. He was starving. He had hemorrhoids, man. I'd write like that too. I don't know. Um, but he, sorry, I am, this is what you get. Andrew is, I, I killed Andrew. Um, I, I he's off camera right now. But he did. He had hemorrhoids. Um, so yes, Marx is the, uh, Marx is trying to come up with a way of explaining what's going on. This is a time of rapid change. Again, we got industrial Re revolution. We've got the steam engine. Since the invention of the steam engine, the world has been in a permanent state of exception. And you have the you have this rapid expansion of what the human hand can do. Now, unfortunately, this rapid expansion of what the human mind can do doesn't happen until later. And that is one of the, uh, one of the tragic necessities of industrialization, that, that you know, the, the labor, the manual labor aspect comes first. So people are trying to figure out, people are trying to make sense of this. And Marx, who is a writer, Marx, who is very imaginative, he comes up with this theory of what has to happen and he riffs on he riffs on hey uh on on, well, on on angles and what you end up getting is you just end up getting this theory of class tension you know all history is the history of class struggle and marx is very very cerebral about this so no i don't think marx is saying uh until much later he's not really trying to be 
an ideologue in the way that we typically think. He's trying to explain, hey, here's what's going on, and that's what capital is. And uh, it, again, this is an intellectual who's trying to explain a period of rapid change. And then you have uh, intellectuals who want to use that change and drive that change towards something that they want. They pick up on it and they carry it forward in a more, in a much more totalitarian, much more uh, insidious way. Yeah. Amanda Griff is joining us. Um, setting aside whether or not a good dose of Preparation H might have prevented most of the deaths of people in the 20th century or not, Lenin is where this thing really diverges. There's no way around this because, like you said, he also had the clearest cut argument because you had the out-of-touch czars, this exorbitant, and if you've ever even looked at a picture of the Winter Palace in Petersburg, like by any, even by Versailles standards, you're talking about opulent, opulent wealth and potato farmers that can't even grow potatoes. Um, the It's hard for us in our modern age to understand what was going on in Russia in the 1914, 15, 16, 17s, leading up to the Bolshevik. It, it was one of the clearest cut things of haves and haves nots, probably in recorded human history. And you have the invention of mass media, which Lenin and later Stalin were masters of, that they could highlight it that's what really lit this thing off. So he brings in what he sees as communism now, and he's looking at that transitory state that Marx is talking about, and he's going, you know what? And I'm readers digesting this, obviously. He's going, you know what? If we use the full power of the state, this will go a whole lot faster. That's basically what happened, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, I was seeing if I could find a good picture uh, because... uh, uh, And she's holding the book up again. This could be one... She's a big yogi. This could be one of her yoga blocks. This thing's so huge. It it is huge, yeah. Um, So you're talking about the picture of the Winter Palace. So top photo is is a dinner being held. Uh, You know, I I think this is at the Winter... No, it's... um, uh, yeah, it's a palace uh, in the Fontanka Canal in St. Petersburg, and then below is a just a, a worker's kitchen, and the disconnect is is vast. Um, yeah, I mean, think think soup kitchen. I mean, not even. Rough uh, hewn just to paint the picture for the podcast folks. That it it looks like one of the coal mines coal miners eating their lunch. Pictures from my West Virginia background. Seriously, that's what it looks like. It's dirty. It's dingy. They're on rough hewn benches. They're all sipping out of their own little canteens. And yeah. then you have the Winter Palace, which is one of the most opulent structures in the world by anybody's standard, yeah. full of people in, you know, tails and suited and booted. Yeah. But that was reality to people. And once you have mass media where you have newspapers and and the boy, the communists can print a pamphlet. Let's give them their due on that one. Oh, they can. Yeah. All they, they got to do is circulate that. Like, seriously, let's just take that. You could have in even in the 1910s and 12s, you could have printed that on a pamphlet and just circulated. You wouldn't have to put words on it. And you're yeah. selling communism with a winning argument, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, and and I mean that that's essentially what they did with with the spark, right? I uh, thought that was you know even even earlier than that. Uh, but little funny tidbit before I forget about Lenin and and capitalism, because Marx had this idea, right, that you have to pass through capitalism to get to communism. Uh, and of course, that was a big problem for the Russians who didn't have capitalism and they wanted to do communism right now. They had an extreme uh, an extreme disconnect between the wealthy and the impoverished. 
uh, or even just most people, uh, but they didn't have capitalism. And so what Lenin did is he tried to come up with this theory, I, I kid you not, where he decided that 20% of the Russian peasantry were capitalists. And I remember reading that for the first time, throwing my head back and laughing involuntarily that 20% of the Russian peasants, we've, ha we've had capitalism, guys, it's the peasants. So even then you see the roots of the collectivization of, of the peasants going on, where Lenin says, oh no, it's, it's the peasants, 20% of them are capitalists, so we've done that, good, and now we can get to communism. Uh, of course, then he revised his theory and uh, and he was able to to come up with a theory in which we did not need capitalism, in fact, to get to communism. Uh, so props to Lenin for that, for, for that imaginative, uh, you know, digression. But yes, at, at any rate, um, you, it, you talk about the mass media and how it was easy to distribute ideas. In some sense, it was, and in some sense, it wasn't. It depended on who the who the censors were. Now, the interesting thing about communism and socialism is that it marketed itself as a revolution, as some radical change. Well, it was a revolution in the sense that you just revolved around and ended up right back in the same spot with different names for essentially the same institutions. It was not a period of ra radical change. Instead of a czar, you had a party. And instead of a church, you had an ideology. The institutions were exactly the same. Russia was a place of extreme censorship uh, and extreme, uh, you know, e extreme authoritarianism in terms of what can get said and what can't. So you had the censors in Tsarist Russia that were not admitting a whole lot of ideas from the West. And then you had people during communism and Bolshevism, yes, that had their print shops and that had their, you know, their, their ideas, they were passing back and forth. But when the workers, in fact, uh, when they first tried to unionize the workers and, and, uh, and the workers said, you know, what we'd like is we'd actually like freedom of speech. That would be very nice. And in fact, they even said something similar to freedom of speech. They wanted free speech. They wanted free expression. Initially, the, you know, the, the higher ups and, and the labor movement and then the communists and the socialists were, were cool with that. And then they realized, no, this isn't working out because we're getting contested. We're getting pushback. People are saying, I really just want to keep more of my own money. I want to make more money. I want to help my family. I want to be able to, to, to take days off and, and to do what's meaningful to me. Uh, they realized that that was too individualistic and that freedom of speech was going to be dangerous. So they started saying, you know, you, you don't really, I mean, you don't need freedom of speech, right? You sort of need, you, you need more organization. That's what's important. You, you don't want to be expressing your individuality. So even in those early days, there was huge uh, expansion of media and the press and literacy, yes, but it ended up actually still remaining quite insular and, and in terms of the ideas that were allowed to circulate.
And the thing is, uh, Amanda Griffiths joining us, we're talking communism, where it started, where they say it's going, and why I can never get there if I was going to put a bullet point on this whole thing. Lennon is such an interesting character with this. You just talked about the media part of this. You know, everybody knows the Russian Revolution and shooting the Tsar and Anastasia and all this. You know, they tried it in 1905. He goes into exile. He winds up in Paris, which he absolutely hates. But he spends his time in exile with a lot of the writing that we have pre, you know, pre-communist Soviet Union, which is where we get a lot of his actual insights because everything after that is pretty much propaganda. But, you know, he's traveling. He's going to, he's working out of university systems. He's meeting with other communists, fighting with other communists, frankly. He goes on this, you know, kind of a walkabout thing for a few years, but the interwar years especially. What do we really know about Lenin? Because he's another one of these guys that's just been marbleized. Everything's inside the statue and behind the buzzwords. We know he developed, you know, the thoughts on Marxism. We know he, you know, became the bloodthirsty dictator that he became and one of, was he always evil? Did he break bad? Do we know? You know, this is one of the great debates with Lenin. You know, was he made or was he born that way? Or did his mama not love him enough? What's the story on him beyond the statues and the platitudes and the Leninism and all that? So Lenin, I think oftentimes in the, the, the shadow of you know, the shadow that Lenin casts, often gets fused with with Stalin and and which Stalin did on purpose by the way so some of this is diffused because Stalin both saw him as a threat but also needed the rub off him so just to be fair here that that's a lot of the propaganda from Stalin himself how that happened exactly and in fact you know it's it's not a contest to see who's who's a worse guy or who has the worst ideas but Stalin was a much more threatening figure and a much more harmful figure in a lot of in in, in the practical sense and in, in the terms in terms of what was actually done uh, than Lenin was. Lenin started off as a pretty intellectual, and you know, Lenin is an interesting fellow because for a long time, you're correct, he was out of this movement as it was fomenting. And there were a lot of things that troubled him about, you know, the failure to launch a true intellectual revolution. Uh, you know, he was for a time, he was exiled uh, for a time. He was not able to be active in politics and that really tore him apart. And you, know, you and I talked about Machiavelli the last time I was on similar situation, right? Uh, but, but what Lenin ends up doing is, yeah, he ends up, trying to to cobble together these various theories from afar and bring them to to different factions of the movement and and to unite it uh, and then of course you sort of get the splinter groups when when Lenin well even even the that the beginnings of that are even prior is Bolshevism Bolshevism and Menshevism so how much of an evil guy was was Lenin I don't see him as as being evil as much as I see him as being incredibly determined to make a change. And that's not me sympathizing with him. That's me trying to, you know, trying to break down what certainly his ideas led to evil. And you can't mince words about that. But I see him 
as being sort of a progenitor or an intellectual titan that then Stalin tries to run with. And I think you see a lot of trying to carry Leninism to its conclusion with Stalinism. And that's my question with the Breaking Bad thing is, mm-hmm. you know, and you don't want to get into the hearts and minds of people because we don't really know, especially historical figures like this, where it's 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 pretty clear cut that they're evil in how it wound up and then trying to parse out how evil they really were is kind of, um, you know, that's a Sophie's choice. You go figure that one out on your own time. But the thing we do know about Lenin here is he didn't get it to its logical conclusion. Stalin just about did, but we'll talk about that in a second. Mao really did, but we'll get into that in a minute. Was he even trying to get it to its logical conclusion or was just getting Russia enough? Because one of the things that doesn't get talked about in this communist revolution stuff is when they got Russia, Lenin very openly like, okay, now it's going to sweep the world and sweep Europe. And then it didn't happen. And then they got bogged down in the, you know, the machinations of having to form a government and then him and Trotsky start fighting. And then there's famine that kills, we will never know how many millions of people through, and this one wasn't on purpose. This was just incompetence. And then it's kind of started falling apart. And then they kind of get a functional government. They have the civil war, which gives them a boost right when they really needed it, frankly, because they win the civil war. That gets the patriotism back. I'm condensing a lot of history here, but we got to for the sake of time. Then Stalin comes up and starts actually running everything with him and the figurehead. And then they start beefing. Then he has a series of strokes and can't speak. And then he dies. Mm-hmm. Did he mean to go to the net logical conclusion or did he just stop and go, no, we've got control of Russia. That's good enough for us. That's really the question with Lenin. Yeah. Lenin, I think, is trying to figure out what the logical conclusion is. And then they're fighting about it. And you're, you're and that's correct. that's the beef with Stalin because Stalin did know what it was. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so he thought. And I mean, I think he was kind of right. I think Bolshevism, when people, when people say real communism has never been tried, my immediate thought and response is uh, the Bolsheviks would like a word. Uh, because they, they a lot of body count to that not trying thing. Yeah, yeah. I I really think real communism. You get if you don't get there, you get very close with Bolshevism. Bolshevism is uh, you know sleep on nails and only eat raw meat and communism all day. So sorry, that was uh, Chernyshevsky. Um, what is to be done? The original. But uh, at, at any rate, yes. So with. Um, with carrying things forward and, uh, and was, was Lenin trying to carry this to its logical conclusion? No, I, I think what Lenin was doing was trying to figure out what this all was. Uh, Stalin tried to bring it to fruition and, and in a sense, in a sense did. And you do, you do see the body count for that. Uh, Amanda Griff is joining us, continuing to talk about communism. Boy, this is this is such good stuff. I feel like I need a spoon to get through it all. Stalin comes on the scene. He has a functional government after much ado and a lot of strife, but he's got a mess on his hands. And one thing Stalin did really smartly, he did two things. He was a master propagandist. Like this, this guy on Twitter would have really been dangerous because he knew what he was doing with propaganda. Um, he mastered the medium. He, there's stories about him. He would literally wake up in the middle of the night and scribble notes off for propaganda slogans like this stuff. Like he, he, he ate and breathed and loved this propaganda stuff that really drove him. He's really good at that. And Lenin dying did something really interesting because he was actually feuding with Lenin when he died. 
but he was perfectly happy with the cult of personality of Lennon that propped up after Lennon's death because that really served his purpose. And that's why they, you know, embalmed him against his and his family's wishes and put him in the Red Square and all that famous stuff. Stalin takes this thing to the next level of logical conclusions, the polite, scientific, sanitized word for it. Um, awful human toll would be the way I would phrase it. He's prepared for it. He's planning on it. As soon as I get Lennon out of the way, we're going to crank this thing up. And that's exactly what he did. Yeah. And so one of the things that the the novel Darkness at Noon does very well is it shows you the way that communism and socialism, if they're done right, uh, they at some point have to kill their creators. And what I mean by that is that you can have early Bolshevism, which is that generation of what is the logical conclusion? What are the ideas? How do we get them out there? Uh, how do we disseminate the propaganda? And then you have the second generation, post-Old Guard, which is we've been propagandized. We know that you think about the workers in the factory. You think about screwing widgets. Okay, we know how to manufacture propaganda. We know what to say. We know what to think. We know what to do. We are drones. And there's only so much imagination. There's only so much creativity. There's only so much art that is permitted in not just socialism in terms of a way of, in terms of a social organization, but in terms of the thoughts, in terms of the self that communism creates, in terms of the spirit, the individual spirit. And so when, when you eventually have the, the, you know, the human toll, we're talking about the body count, and we're also count, we're talking about the, the spiritual side of it, which is the, the death of individuality, the death of the individual spirit that comes when you say, we've decided what the answer is. This is the answer. This is where we're moving. This is, the, this is what our leaders can do. This is what our party is about. This is what the agents of the party are dispatched to do. And this is what the workers do. And you have this system, yes, where ideally everyone would be equal and there would be no class and there would, there would be no, uh, there, there would, there would be no inequality, but for what? And that's what I always come back to, uh, you know, on a, just on a personal level when I'm, when I'm reading communist and socialist theories, for what, you know, for what would you be equal when, why, why, why would, why does anything matter after you do this? to the individual uh, to the individual spirit why do why was it why would anything why would life be worth living what it what would life even mean and that's what you get to with the new guard and the new generation you have an earlier generation that is yes full of full of ideas and full of feuding and back and forth and what's the right way forward and then you have a decision that's made about the direction in which we're going, about what communism is about, and of course people fight about that um, still, but what is the absolute? And that's decided upon, and then there can only be so much deviation from that cause before it becomes a threat. So that's what you get when we talk about the logical conclusion and the horrible human toll, and that's what you get in 
in Stalinism is a very rote way of thinking. So once again, you have stagnation. You have the factory worker that's screwing in the widget. That becomes people's brain. That becomes the, the machination of the state. Everything is very automated. And it's incredibly sad and it's scary to me. Amanda Griffiths is joining us. This we got to pause here though to bring it to the present day for just a second though because mm-hmm. I I know the people that are that really go progressive borderline some of them will openly say they like socialism or communism or whatever and we'll parse that out some other time but for the purposes of this let's just put them together. I'm talking about the Americans that do this, you know. I, our friends in Brooklyn and Berkeley who think this stuff's really really cool and love it and and just sure. absolutely eat it up. Um, somehow I got on the, the, the DSA mailing list. I've been getting their emails for years. It's hilarious. I don't know why, but anyway, they really believe the revolution part and I get it. I, I mean, I don't, I don't agree with it, but I understand it. They really want to see the revolution. They want to see people rise up and get their power back. Now, the really honest ones will, will admit, yeah, that's, that's going to hurt people, which, you know, they, they don't want to say out loud because they get tagged with being bloodthirsty or whatever, but the honest ones understand that. I don't think most of the people spouting that really understands that there's just no way to do that without violence. There's there's zero way to have a bloodless revolution anymore. But even a smaller amount after that, and, and I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, most of them, because I don't think they're bad people, monsters, and want to destroy people, although some of them probably do. I think we broad brush too much. I don't think a lot of them ever stop to think is like, we have a long human history of revolutions they never end the way you think they're going to. And they're always, 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 without exception in history, they get real indiscriminate about who gets chewed up because what happens is something has to be the supreme thing to fight for. That thing you were talking about where, well, what does it matter if you're, you know, if you're a, if you're a widget under the czar or you're a widget under the communist, what's the matter? You're still, you know, you're not still not getting your potatoes and vodka enough. Well, what happens is it becomes the revolution itself that is so much more important than everybody, and it just starts eating everything. But they never get to that step in the intellectualism of it for some reason. I don't know why, you know, you know, community college dropout me can figure that out, and the folks that are sitting around Berkeley have issues with it. Well, I do. They're funded. I'm not. I'm sorry. That's unfair. I shouldn't say no, that. But you get the idea. What, why don't they? But we're talking about Stalin was obsessed with taking it to the final step. Mm-hmm. What is it with our American version of this? They want to pretend like there isn't a final step. They don't even want to act like there's a logical conclusion to sort this out. Do they just magically think they're going to stop at the revolution and it's all going to be, you know, unicorn ice cream? You touched on so many wonderful points there. And I'm, I'm trying Sorry. I'm trying. No, don't apologize. See, I'm trying to pick them apart. So the first thing is, uh, well, well, the first thing is, how can you figure it out? And and these folks couldn't. It, part of it has to do with once again what I to what I to how many ideas are you exposed? And you're exposed to a lot of ideas. We all are as Americans. 
they didn't have that back then. They didn't have it in Tsarist Russia. They didn't have it under 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 communism. Um, and they, that was just kind of the way that that Russia operated, and to to some extent, still operates. Russia um, has an ingrained. Not to interrupt you, but it's important no. to point out here. The Russian people and culture has an ingrained inferiority complex and paranoia. And I'm not being mean. This is just anybody that studies Russia. This is just what it is. They have an ingrained inferiority complex and paranoia that is just ground into them on a psyche level. They're always been like this, whether it was communist, socialist or under Putin. It's all the same. That's just part of who they are as a people. And that goes into what you're saying is like they, they were primed for this kind of thing. Yeah. So the, the, you brought up the point that revolutions, these, these, these revolutions all are always bloody throughout history. And to some extent, it becomes indiscriminate about whose blood is being shed. Once again, people can listen to this multiple times and play a drinking game. The number of times that I refer to darkness at noon, there is a part, uh, there are several parts in, in this book. There are dialogues between these two characters, Ivanov and Gletkin. Ivanov is more old guard Bolshevik. Gletkin is a new generation. And what uh, you see this Ivanov imparting this on Gletkin that to some extent, revolutions are indiscriminately bloody and people get caught in the crossfire and Gletkin becomes Ivanov imparts what he can on Gletkin uh sort of I think understanding what is what is necessary um for for him and for Gletkin uh toward the end but you you see this this transition between idealism and cynicism that goes back and forth between the two. And I think about you know, comparing that to more of a Bolshevik mentality uh, versus uh, sort of the democratic socialist of America mentality. And you asked about uh, the, to what extent are, do we just want this, this perpetual revolution? I would love perpetual revolution. And in fact, I think that is what capitalism is. Capitalism is perpetual revolution and reinvention and innovation begetting innovation, creation begetting in, infinite creation. Now, I don't think that's the way that communists look at capitalism. And I don't think that's what capitalism meant in early communism and indeed in early capitalism. But it's what it means today, and maybe we can we can talk about that some other time. If we do like a part two of this would be fantastic. But, yeah, I think we're gonna have to. Yeah. Okay. Totally here for it. But so, to to what extent are are American DSA types trying to get to that? I think a lot of them are because revolutions are inherently romantic. I think they're romantic. I think intellectual revolutions are incredibly romantic. If we can get a libertarian intellectual revolution, I'm probably the only person who wants that, but I'm so here for it. Uh, and I, I understand the appeal. So what's being aimed for today, I think in a sense, it gives me a little bit of hope because there are so many idealists in DSA type movements and democratic socialist movements that it can't really get off the ground because you look, that was the problem with Occupy, right? If you look at the history of the Occupy Wall Street movement, um, there's, there's too much of an attempt towards syncretism and toward 
acceptance of diversity, which is great. And that's what I want, but it's not very, it's not very lockstep. It's not very ideologically rigid. And so that's why these movements oftentimes don't get off the ground and they're mostly just ideas and circulating emails and distributing pamphlets. Uh, To another extent, it's, it's insidious because all it takes is that one person to say, you know what, it doesn't matter how many people die. uh, And I can dupe these people and fool these people and make and, you know, use nice words and propagandize. And we can really get this thing going and use the institutions that we currently have to, to perpetuate these more communist, more socialized, more centralized aims. And maybe we can try to be nice about it. But if there are a few, you know, if there are a few hazards along the way, then that's for the greater good. So that's the danger is when people don't read up on this stuff and don't really think critically about it. I'll always tell people who are free market minded, you got to read Chernyshevsky. You know, you got to read Lenin. You got to read Marx and Hegel and Engels. You read it. You annotate all of it. Um, because if you don't, then you're not able to understand why what matters matters. Uh, so I, I think everyone should should be should be a student of this. Yeah, I, I, this is why about it. Uh, I guess about two years ago, they had the thing about, oh, they're teaching Marxism at the military academy. I'm like, they better. You should. Like, what kind of freaking childish nonsense is this? If, they're not teaching it as if you must do this. They're teaching it so you know what it looks like and you understand. Like it, it was just childish. Amanda Griffiths joining us again. I'm going to try not to get on another soapbox too high again about this. Please do. But it, here, here's the problem with this. Again, I hate to ask a really dumb question because it's a dumb question. I can feel my dad slapping me in the back of the head, the history teacher that he was just for asking this. But like, you know, why why can't we read history books and learn the lessons here? You know, what Lenin did, what Stalin did, what Mao looked at and went, let me really crank this up and show you what I can do. What China is doing right now because they got what Soviet Russia never had and they have a 750 million strong workforce that is completely beholding to the state and they're leveraging it economically to do all kinds of bad things. Why can't we see it? Especially, let's just keep it to America because we're Americans, but the Western audience because we do have an international audience. Are, are we just too fat, dumb, and happy? We don't want to deal with stuff like that. Is it easier to just leave it as an intellectual exercise instead of the, you know, the human tragedy that it is? Why do we have such a blind spot to this where it comes to, okay, Marx had some interesting ideas, may even had a point considering the context of the time. No, we shouldn't let this be a ruling philosophy. Yes, people are going to hijack this for very, very bad means, even if you're the most well-intentioned person in the world, because they're going to look at you and go, oh, there's a whole bunch of people that'll do whatever I tell them as long as I use the right terminology. And that's what's happened. You know, in the 20th century, a third of the world's population was dominated by this stuff in a brutal way. Why do we have such a blind spot to talking about the bad parts of this? And we have people actively, some of them in positions of great security and power in the university systems, advocating for this stuff. 
Um, I think there's a fantastic question. It's not stupid at all. And there are a couple reasons for that. There are a couple answers I would give. The first is that there are people who see it. The people who see it are the people who live it and then the people who, who work. So take the gig economy. Uh, I live in the People's Republic of California um, under the uh, dictatorship of Gavin with the good hair Newsom. And it's what I call him, that's his real name. And you have a very hard time getting, or a much harder time getting an Uber and a Lyft here than you do uh, in a lot of other places in a lot of other cities because of the way that they have tried to, they've tried to bring union, union stuff to the gig economy and to being your own boss. And we talked about the fundamental tension at the beginning, come back to it, between the gig economy and to some extent uh, unionization and big unions. Uh, now, when you talk to someone who does drive Uber or who's part of the gig economy, they'll tell you how difficult it is, all the paperwork and all the grunt work and all the stuff they have to do now. And you know, it's so, it's so much harder in California to set your own hours and to be your own boss. So the people who do see the problems that this causes, one extent are, are workers. And that's why time and again, when you look at the history of communism and socialism, the workers are the ones who say, I love what you're trying to do to the union people. They say, I love what you're trying to do to help us. Uh, what we'd really like to do is we'd like to earn more money and we'd like to, to spend more time doing what's meaningful for us. And we'd like to have more of a say in, in, in what we do. And to some extent, and then, and then capitalism comes in and says, hey, guess what, gig economy, what's up? You can be your own boss, it's wonderful. And the unions say, well, that puts a fundamental tension on the idea of the worker, capital T, capital W. So that's always been part of the history of socialism, has been the tension between the union and the worker. Uh, people don't often talk about that, but you see it when you look at the history time and time again. The second reason why don't people see this uh, has to do with the academic side. And I will tell you something about which I'm kind of ashamed. Uh, which is that I didn't learn about communism in school. Um, I didn't learn about the Cold War in school. I didn't learn about the Cultural Revolution at all. I didn't know what Tiananmen Square was. I'd, I'd seen a picture of a guy standing in front of a tank, and until I was probably about 19 or 20, I didn't know why he was standing in front of a tank. And I went to schools in Fairfax County, Virginia, which is apparently the best county uh, in, in, in the U.S. or was for public schools. D.C. suburb, for those of you that are from Logan. Very, very wealthy D.C. suburb. And I didn't know why the guy was in front of the tank. And it, it bugged me that I didn't understand this stuff. And I started reading about it. It's not taught. We don't teach it. And if I, can, if I can plug some stuff that doesn't have to do directly with me, um, that this is part of what I think is so great about projects like the Dissident Project, which, which was just launched by, by Young Voices, which has people who have escaped, uh, you know, young people who have escaped and whose families have escaped communist and socialist regimes going to high schools and speaking about it, I think is so important. And no, I'm not being paid to do this. This is completely off the cuff. Uh, when, when you have the Victims of Communism Museum 
and and it, it's so important. Part of the reason that we don't understand this is because it's not taught. I I mean I, I have I have multiple degrees. I didn't know why a guy was standing in front of a tank in Tiananmen Square until I was like twenty or twenty one, and it's incredible um, that that shouldn't be happening. I didn't know about uh, about any of this. I, I you know I I found people's tragedy and stuff myself and that's not because I'm a cool person it's it's because people don't teach this in schools and on the other side by the way when when you have intellectuals who are very very free market oriented a lot of times they reject the idea of reading the people they definitely need to read they won't put marks on their shelves or they want maybe I'm I'm not being charitable enough they'll put marks on their shelves or but they they won't they won't put some of the some of the other ideologues that are less well known on there everyone needs to read these people everyone needs to teach about this stuff and teach it honestly you know teach it with integrity don't don't straw man it i mean understand why this meant something and why this made sense to bright people and why it still makes sense to bright people and people who want to make a change understand why this is appealing why this is romantic realize that maybe there's not a ton of daylight between you and Ivanov from darkness at noon or maybe I'm talking too much to myself now but that's that's it's important to do that. It's important to understand these shadows and how they still live today because otherwise they become much more than shadows. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Yeah, Amanda Griffith joining us. That shadow gets to why I could never be a communist or a, even a socialist, although I'm, you know, look, the Internet buzzwords where everybody you don't like is a communist and socialist. That's not helping anybody. Don't people that just throw that around it. No, a union is not automatically a communist socialist. I have issues with the American version of unions, mm -hmm. but I'm, I think you should have a right to join a union. I just also yeah. think you should have a right to not join a union. But we'll get into that some other same time. I would never cross a picket line because it's just drove into me that, that that's a dishonorable thing. Unions to me are complicated, but no, a union, every Democrat is not a communist. Not every union is a communist. Not everybody that's a progressive is a socialist. Stop it. You're not helping anything. Even if you really hold those beliefs dear, you know, you use the right terminology. I think that's part of the problem, though, is because we've we in America and our opulence and our fat, dumb and happy. I'm, I know Rod speaking here, though, but if if you're on the Internet and you're and you've got hours in the day to sit around and listen and talk about this stuff, you're a pretty privileged person. Let's just be honest here. 
we've buzzwords this stuff so where it's it's just it's been you know simonized that's the old school cleaning stuff for those of you that are listening from logan we've made it so pristine and such an intellectual exercise you talked about not learning this stuff i remember my dad one of my dad's multiple degrees was in curriculum so he got the school books before they went to print to find errors in it that's one of the things he did in the summer Mm. he loved it he loved red line history books I've heard him preach sermons out of the history books where he redlined and he's like, look at this idiot. He thinks Reagan, Reagan was trying to keep the cold war going with Mikhail Gorbachev. (laughs) This is in my lifetime. I'm only 42. But so, but I'm, I'm bringing that up for a reason. That was a widely published history book that had that in it that he was objecting to. Those people are now senior teachers in high school because that would have been 30 years ago now or senior professors, tenured professors. This is not it. This is not. Yeah, I've had a couple of them myself. This is not a new problem, the way we discuss this. And I know it's cliche to go, well, we we don't learn our history, so we're doomed to repeat it. We're not even doing the initial step of learning the history. Like you said, and to be fully clear, you know, I'm involved with Young Voices. I also do the mentorship. I do behind the scenes stuff for them. I've had this. My goal is I want to have every single one of them on because they're that good. We've already done a whole podcast with one of them, um, with uh, Francis Hoy. Talking about getting ran out of Hong Kong, she she went back to pro. She was protesting at thirteen with an umbrella. Mm. You know what were you what were you doing in eighth grade? You know, and she gets run out of her own country. So yeah, we don't have a working living history. We don't even have the word of mouth history about how bad this stuff is. And we have you know you held up your cell phone. We have these magical machines that have the entire depth and breadth of human history in it, and we're using it to send cat pictures and yell at each other. And you could you could pull up Tiananmen Square right now and watch the video, like right now, within the next two seconds. We have more power and do less with it. As bad as we want to bash on communism, and we should, and the authoritarian people that make it into a wickedness that has killed tens of millions of people, Part of the reason that happens is because free people don't do anything with the tools we have at hand. That's the part of the history. That's the disconnect. And it goes to the core of why I can't go to be a communist or socialist. That shadow you talked about to get a long-winded answer rounded off, that shadows human nature, which is undefeated. It has to be constantly fought with and wrestled with. And the idea that we're all going to be communal is never going to work outside of very small instances because somebody's always going to abuse it and somebody's always going to give in. And I've got, you know, you bring whatever you want. I got about six, 7,000 years of recorded human history that says we're right on this. And I'm a big believer in community. I think you find individuality through community because we're going to, we'll go back to a little bit of existentialism. We'll go back to one of my favorite dudes. His name is Irving Goffman. And, and uh, you know, I, I feel as, as he does that you find out who you are through being among other people. And what's so important is being able to choose one's own community and being able to create one's own communities. And when someone tells you who your group is and what your community is and what your community is about and can dictate the way that anyone in your community is meant to think and be and how they're meant to experience life and they condition you to believe that and it's not actually that hard to do 
unfortunately, because we are inclined toward community. We are creatures that want meaning through community. We, we want that. When someone tells you that, again, it destroys your spirit and it destroys your capacity to create through community. I believe in individuality through intersubjectivity and intersubjectivity through individuality. And I just used a couple of big words there and I apologize, but basically what we'll I'm saying so you can just <laughs> Google them yourselves, folks. Basically what I'm saying is that I I I believe that yes, community is important, but be, it's important because individuality is important that smallest common denominator of the community is what makes the community meaningful. The community that, if you think about it mathematically, which I love to do, I love to think about things in kind of in mathematical terms. When you have like the number 12, why why is the number 12, why does it have that value? Well, because of its factors and because of its because of it's the factors into which it can be broken down. The same applies to the community. You know, if you don't have the, the concept of two, you don't have the concept of 12. If you don't have the individual, you don't have the community. If the individual does not have meaning and value, qua individual as an individual, separate from the community, then the community doesn't have value. Um, and that's you know, you know a long-winded way of of saying that these ideas of community and individuality are not intention, but we have to understand why both of them are so valuable, and it has to do with who you are and what's meaningful to you and your capacity to create, uh, and and then create other things that create themselves. It's really a beautiful thing. You can't get it if all you're doing is seeing things from a collective point of view. And the other part of this, to kind of put a bow on some of this, there are people who argue that the state should be equal with community or the state should be equal with family. We see that in the old Soviet propaganda all the time. We Putin's been doing this with the mothers because their birth rate's gone through the floor. Like, well, the patriotic duty of the mother, you know, they want to tie family and community to the state as if those are one and the same or even worse that the state should be preeminent over community and the family. Mm -hmm. We have a very imperfect system of government in America. I, I'm, I'm not an idiot. I know it's, it's flawed, but we have one of the few diverse pluralistic societies in the world for all its flaws, for all its failings, because you can have different communities in it and it still mostly functions, at least on a level better than just about anything else in recorded human history. You, when you take community away from somebody, or worse, you say the state is more community. You know, again, I don't want to get into the spiritualism or existentialism of it, but that just does something to the soul of people that is beyond politics and beyond history and beyond ideology. And I think that's where you can start having the real bad human rights violations. That's where you start having the mass murder. That's where you start having, you know, things like Holomayor. That's where you start having the Great Leap Forward, which we will never, some people think 25 million people died. That's how that happens. It's because when the state is so preeminent that life doesn't matter, it takes humanity away from people. And I hate to be that blunt about it, but I see what's going on in the world. I see people like Xi Jinping. I see people like Vladimir Putin. I see what communism has done in the, you know, 140. 
30, 40 years since Mark started writing about this stuff. I want nothing to do with it. And if, if I didn't know any of the politics and any of the ideology, just morally as a human being, I would have to be against this. And that's just where I wind up with it. When I, when I look at the whole of it. Yeah. I, you know, you, we talked about early, we opened with the definition, right. Of communism and and the collectivization of, of, of private property. And then we said, well, that's actually kind of a pretty good definition because when you think about it, what is private property? Uh, what is the first property? Again, when we talk about life, liberty, life, liberty, and property, um, we understood property to mean what is proper to oneself. It's actually not, first of all, anything external. It's the self. So the collectivization of the self is what communism is about. And when you have the collectivization of the self, it almost sounds too simplistic, but this is exactly how it plays out. It sounds too simplistic for people to believe. And yet when we look at history, this is exactly what happens. When the self is collectivized, one human, one individual doesn't matter. When you have things like, and I forget what um, what particular standoff it was during the Cold War, but there was, um, there was some general who said, uh, you know, well, they, they can't kill all of us. So it doesn't matter how many, you know, how many individuals they kill, they can't possibly kill all of us. And talking about the, the innocent lives that would be lost. It doesn't matter who dies, really, just as long as the ideology persists, just as long as there's someone to generate new bodies. Um, because the body is what's important and then we can condition the mind however we want. We just need ideological soldiers, not, not people who, who think. And that, that, by, that's not a dig on, on soldiers, by the way. That is, I, 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 my, my dad was in the Navy, so it's, that's not me saying soldiers don't think. That's the mentality of, uh, of, what's, of, of, of what this does. That's, 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 that's all it becomes is we just need bodies. And yeah, it does take away the self. It does take away the spirit. And eventually the, you know, we see it over and over again in history. Eventually the spirit's going to start poking through no matter what you do. Yeah. And no matter how much control or for how long you have, at some point folks are going to rebel because (laughs) there's your irony. Like rain, somebody's going to want a revolution eventually. And you're going to be the one getting revolutioned out. Amanda Griffiths, this has been so much uh, good, just heavy stuff. Love talking about it. I already agree with you. We're going to have to do at least a part two of this. We didn't even get to Mao and China and Southeast Asia and all that. We will do this again um, until we do the next one, which is going to be soon because I'm going to go and Google all those big words you read and read up some more on this stuff. Uh, Let folks know where they can follow you, what you have going on and where they can keep up with you until they get you back on Hertel again here very, very soon for part two of communism. 
Sure. Uh, so you can you can follow me first of all on Twitter on at Ajax the Griff A J A X T H E G R I F F. That is as in Ajax the Great because Ajax the Great is my Hellenic crush. Uh, you can also find me on my contributor page at Young Voices. Uh, I, you'll see all my latest work. On Monday, you can catch me on Indisputable on TYT on the Young Turks Network, which I'm excited and a little bit terrified about, but it's going to be a lot of fun. So um, you can you can see what I'm doing. If you go to Young Voices, I'm one of their contributors. And if you catch me on Twitter and follow me on Twitter, you can see my uh, most recent work as well. So and you can catch me on on a couple of her tele appearances, which have been so much fun. Yeah, we're going to do this again. Dr. Richie's great. You'll do fine on that. I'll be watching that. Uh, we'll probably link to it next time you're on. Maybe I'll play you a clip from it. We'll never know. We Ooh. might see. Uh, Amanda Griffiths, you are outstanding. Can't wait to do this again. Thank you so much for the time. Fantastic. Talk to you, Andrew. Thank you so much. Thank you. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.